theyeshiva.net. So this guy, what's so funny? <laughs> Guys are funny. Okay, I got it. So this guy refuses to move out of his mother's home for two reasons. First of all, he's in love with his mom, which is sweet. And besides that, he's in love even more with his cat who lives in his mom's home. And he really would not trust anybody to take care neither of his cat nor his mom. After 15 years of never leaving the home, his friends persuade him. Okay. His friends persuade him that for his well being, he needs to take a break. He needs to relax, get a breath of fresh air. He refuses till his brother promises him that during his vacation he will move into the home and nurture the cat and look after mom. So finally, the guy agrees, books himself a ticket to go to the Caribbean's first-class ticket, gets himself a suite. It's going to be finally, at last, a two-week vacation. He'll see the world, he'll enjoy the sun, he'll appreciate the water, and he will be able to regain his composure as an individual human being. Books the flight, flies to the Caribbean, gets the hotel, comes into his room, is in the middle of unpacking with a beautiful view on the ocean, and the telephone in the room rings. Picks up the telephone, it's his brother. His brother tells him, my dear brother, Yisgadal, v'yit kadash, the cat is dead. What happened? Cat ran out into the street, truck came, ran it over, alav hashalom. The poor man is devastated. For 20 minutes he's weeping profusely. After he calms down a bit, he tells his brother, you know, you really need a tutorial in basic human sensitivity. You know how attached to the cat I am. That's how you give me the news? The cat is dead? He's Gadalvi, he's Gadash? What should have I said, the brother asked. You should have called me and told me the cat ran up to the roof. The next day you call me and say, the cat is not coming down from the roof. The third day you call me, the cat approached the edge of the roof. The fourth day you say, well, the cat fell off the roof. That way you give me four days to prepare emotionally for the devastating news. The brother apologizes and promises that henceforth, he will be far more cautious in how he presents such sad news to other people. He says, okay, I forgive you. Now let me ask you, how is mom doing? And his brother says, mother is on the roof. <laughs> I... <laughs> Thank you.
this anecdote, of course, captures the idea that you can uh, speak to somebody, but they don't really get it. As they say, if you don't get it, you just don't get it. And some people just don't get it. So tutorials, techniques, methods, lessons, instructions are effective. But then, at some point, the cat remains a cat. The mouse remains a mouse in the famous Rambam story. So tonight, I wish to begin by sharing with you three Talmudic stories that at first glance seem quite incomprehensible. And let's journey through these three stories because as we will discover, Bezer Hashem, they really embody for us the story of psychology from a Jewish Kabbalistic, mystical, Hasidic perspective. The first story in tractate Ta'anit, the second story in tractate Chagiga, the third story in tractate Pchoros. Story number one, Tainis Davchav, Ta'anit, page 20. The Gemara tells a story, the Talmud relates the following narrative. One of the great sages, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, was returning from his master where he studied a lot of Torah. He felt jolly, he felt happy, elated. He was traveling on his donkey on the river, on the bank river near the water, feeling extremely inspired and uplifted. Another Jew is riding on the donkey, approaches this great Talmudic sage and says, Shalom Alecha, Mori Virabi. Shalom Alecha, my teacher, my master, my Rebbe. And the great sage, Rebbe Lazar, looks at him and responds, Kama mechuar adam zeh. How ugly of a human being are you? Perhaps all the residents of your city are as grotesque as you? The man responds and says, Leich l'uman sha'asa'ani ve'morlo kama mechuar klizeh sha'asita. Why don't you go to the craftsman who fashioned me and tell him how grotesque, how repulsive is this vessel that you have crafted? The great Talmudic sage realizes he erred, he apologizes. The man says, no, I will not forgive you till you go to the Uman Sha'asa'ani, the craftsman who fashioned me, and tell him how ugly his vessel is. And even when they come to the city and he sees the great Kabbalat Panim, the great welcome that this sage receives, he still refuses to forgive him until the people persuade him and influence him and he finally forgives him by condition that he doesn't make it a habit. And that's when he walks into the base Medrash and he says, Man should be soft as a reed and not as stubborn as a cedar tree. That's the end of the story. And I ask you, my dear friends, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, forget a great sage. Forget the fact there was a great Rebbe, teacher, master. If you're simply a mensch, in Yiddish there's an old expression, a mensch is not a mensch, un amol das euch nicht. A human being is only a human being, and sometimes not even that. 
Even if you're in a lousy mood and somebody comes over to you and says, Shalom Alecha Rabbi Umayri, with such respect and reverence, even if you're in the worst mood, you say, Hi, how are you? Whereas some Jews just nod their head, you know, those nods. Good Shabbos. We're afraid to say good Shabbos, so we just nod. But we're not analyzing tonight anybody, so. Not. Whoever heard of such a response? How ugly are you? How grotesque are you? Never mind that he apologized later. What was this man thinking? And the Gemara itself identifies him, not just as a human being, not just as a Jew, but as a great master, as a great Rebbe, as a great teacher. Rebbe Lazar, the son of Rebbe Shimon, from the greatest. Story number two. Masech the Chagiga, second chapter. Chagiga, the second chapter, Daf Tasvav, 15, page 15. From hundreds of years of Tanoim and Amiroyim, of those sages who gave us Torah Peh, the oral tradition, the Mishnah and the Gemara, the Medrash and the Zohar, Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi. We only know of hundreds of sages, we only know recorded of one, one genius, one extraordinary mind who abandoned the path of Judaism. His name was Elisha ben Avuya, who even till today is not identified by his name, but rather identified as Acher, the alien, the stranger, the foreigner, the other one, Acher. Acher was from the greatest, a colleague of Rabbi Akiva and the contemporaries of that time, one generation after the destruction of the Second Temple. Naturally, when he left his people and he left his faith, his students left him as well, besides one, the legendary Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir refused to leave his teacher because the brilliance of his teacher and the amount of Torah he learned from him. He defended himself by saying, He knew how to remove the shells and find the insides. One day, says the Talmud, it was Shabbos. And Elisha ben Avuya was riding on his horse. Despite the fact that Lirkov al-Sus, to ride on a horse, was one of the rabbinic prohibitions. Biblically, it's permitted, but the Mishnah says in Masachet Beitzad Aflamidvav that it's one of the rabbinic prohibitions not to ride on an animal on Shabbos or Yamtif. Shema Yachtoch Zmora. But Elisha ben Avuya, of course, was not very mahader in this shvus, in this prohibition, as he wasn't in others. So he's riding on a horse, and Reb Meir is following him by foot, because while he's horseback riding, he's giving a lecture in Torah. So imagine the scene. This guy is on the horse, Reb Meir is, I guess, jogging behind him, and listening to the shir. Must have been an interesting shir. At some point, Elisha ben Avuya stops. He turns to his student, Reb Meir, and he says, Meir, Chazorbach, it's time for you to go back, to return. Because I have been counting the steps of my horse and realized that at kan tchum Shabbos, 
at this point is the border after which a Jew is now allowed to walk on Shabbos. It's approximately three or three and a half thousand feet outside of the city, what's known as Tchum Shabbos. We don't walk outside of a city where there's no population for a certain amount. It's part of Shabbos rest. After 3,000 feet, you have to go back. Reb Meir tells him, Rebbe, Af you also come back. And of course, he means two things in Chazorbach. He means Chazorbach, return geographically, but more importantly, he means existentially. Elisha ben Avuya understood the words of his student and he says, I can't go back. His student says, why not? And he describes the moment when he heard a bas call from heaven, a voice from heaven. And the voice said the following, Shuvu, Banim, Shovavim, Chutz, Me'achem. The voice said, return, O children who have gone astray. Return. But there's an exception. The exception is Acher. He's not welcome back. Acher tells Reb Meir, God has rejected me. I am not welcome back. I cannot go back. In Yerushalmi, in Chagiga, the story is described with some more details. He was riding on his horse on Yom Kippur. Where was he, where was he horseback riding? On Har HaMori, on the Har Abayis, on the mountain where the Beis Hamikdash stood just a few decades earlier. And that's when he heard a voice coming out. Shuvu Banim Shovavim, which we say on Yom Kippur in the Ila, except for Acher, I can't go back. And indeed, according to the Bavli, Elisha ben Avuya died an apostate, a heretic, Kitzitz ben Etias, or what we call an apikairis, as the Gemara describes in Masachet Chagiga. I ask you, friends, a question. What happened? What happened to the foundational principle of Judaism articulated so definitively by the Rambam, by Maimonides and Hilchis Tshuva in the laws of repentance. Ein lecha davar ha'omeid bifnei Nothing can stand in the path of repentance. Afilu chata kol yomav. Somebody who sinned his entire life, denied God, and the Rambam says like Menashe. Menashe, the most corrupt king of Israel who reigned over the ten tribes for 55 years and murdered his own grandfather. And you know what his grandfather's name was? Yeshayahu Hanavi. Even Menashe, who is considered one of the most heinous kings, and at the end of his life, he did shuva. The Gemara in Sanhedrin describes that the angels did not want to let him approach God, and God had to dig a tunnel so that the angels shouldn't see how Menashe Melech Yisrael gets under the tunnel, which again is so perplexing. Who runs the show in heaven, God or the angels? God says, I want Menashe to come. The angels say, sorry. <laughs> it's like they say the secretary in the White House is the one who really runs the country. You know, presidents come and go every four years. But the secretaries, you know, they have watched. They have watched Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson, you know. They live everybody, they outlive everybody. 
Who runs, who runs the heavens? The angels say, no, Menashe is not welcome. Persona non grata. What does God do? He has to dig a tunnel so that they don't notice. So they don't notice. And that's where Menashe crawls through. But even Menashe is accepted. What's the meaning of this voice? Shuvu bonim shovavim chutz What happened to that notion? That shuvah is always a possibility. That a person can always return. That a person can always recreate, redefine, open a new chapter in their life, turn a leaf, make amends over the past, and write a different, author a different future for themselves. What type of baskoil is this? Who said it? Why would they say it? Besides, besides, I don't come over to somebody Friday night in shul if I was not planning to invite them and approach them and say, by the way, you're not invited to my home. They weren't thinking of coming. I didn't invite them. There's no reason not to uninvite them. Elisha ben Avuya was going horseback riding on Yom Kippur, on Hara Miria. He had no machshavat zarot of doing tshuva. He had no thoughts of doing tshuva. Why is this Basco telling him, by the way, you're not welcome? Number three, how many of you in this auditorium, in this great synagogue, have heard ever a Basco from heaven? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand all at once. <laughs> A man is hearing voices from heaven. God is speaking to him. That's pretty good. That's pretty interesting. There's a relationship. God talks to him. And what's God telling him? By the way, we have no relationship. Where I grew up, there was an older chassid. He had a sense of humor. And whenever I would see him, he would say, With you, I don't talk. But that could be every day. You, I don't talk to. There was once a teenager who, this is quite literal, who was at the verge of suicide. So the host who took him into his home to nurture him told him, by the way, if you commit suicide, I'll never talk to you again. And, and somehow it triggered something positive in him. So Elisha ben Avui is hearing voices from heaven. How do we understand this story? Story number three. Now we travel to Masechet Pchorot, Davches, page 8 in Tractate Pchoros. There the Talmud describes an enigmatic debate between the sages of Athens. Sabi de Bey Atuna, the great elders of Athens, the intellectual capital of Greece, the home of the great Greek philosophers from the tradition of Socrates, of Plato, Aristotle. And a great debate happens between one Jew against 60 philosophers of Athens. The name of the Jew is Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananya. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananya is a Levite, a Levi. He still sung and held concertos in the second base Hamikdush. The Gemara says in Erkin, he was min hamishoyerim. He was one of the singers, the composers. He was a brilliant and sharp mind. He held the debates on behalf of the Jews and he debates 60 philosophers. And when we read through the debates recorded in the Gemara in the Talmud and Chayrez Davches, it's strange because they seem quite primitive, extremely simple, and one wonders why men of intellect would have such exchanges. 
For example, for example, one, deb- one question they ask Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya in order to prove and delegitimize the Jewish faith is, what do you do when you want to preserve salt? You don't want the salt to go bad, to become putrid. You want to preserve it. What do you do? So Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya says, you use the amniotic sac of a mule. So they tell him, a mule doesn't procreate. He says, and salt doesn't go bad. And he wins the debate. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Doesn't seem very profound. They ask him another question. If a chick dies when it's still in the egg, where does its soul come out from? And this is the way of delegitimizing Judaism. So he says, from the same way the soul entered. Say, you win. Many debates that way. But I want to focus on one. And it's this. They ask Rabbi Yeshua a question. Quite a relevant question, actually. A bachelor comes to town. He's looking for a shidduch. He puts his eyes on a wonderful, wonderful young woman. The family and the woman refuse him. Will he go searching for yet a superior young woman? Of course not. Madach, she rejected him. For sure, somebody greater would reject him. He'll go and he will lower his expectations. That's their question. And with this again, they want to demonstrate some advantage in Greek culture over Torah. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanani says, if I take a hammer and a nail, and I'm banging the nail into the wall, and it's not penetrating, what do I do? I take the nail, I lift it up, and I try knocking it in at a higher position in the wall, and it will go in. Maybe one woman did not take him, but he got to go to the better woman. That's the end, and they say, you won. And here again, what does this mean? So all the, many of the Talmudic commentators try to demystify and decode these riddle-like exchanges. You have the Marsha who has a whole commentary on it. The Vilnagon wrote a commentary on it. Reb Nachman of Breslov and Likuti Maharan has a commentary on it. The Maharal of Prague, uh, the Baditchever, the Baditchever in Ketusha Slavia, and many other works. So you remember the three Talmudic stories? You're with me? How ugly are you? Everybody is welcome to tshuva besides Acher. And even if one young woman rejected you, go for better. Get that nail higher and it'll go in. It might go in. Strange episodes all recorded in that fundamental work that captures all of Jewish wisdom and law and wit and history and philosophy known as the Gemara, as the Talmud. So, all three stories are responding to the same question. And the question is, who am I? Or who are you? Both questions are asked in the beginning of Bereshus. 
After Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge, what does God ha- ask? One question. Ayeka, where are you? From the moment they ate from that tree of Das, they have been in therapy since. Ayeka, Rabbi Shnei Zalman said in prison, is not a geographical question. It's a psychological question. Where are you? And a few portions later, Rivka, our mother Rebecca, asks, Lama Not who am I, but why am I? So, there's something called in Yiddish, a kratzer, a procrastinator. I don't know the word in Hebrew. A professional procrastinator. There was this procrastinator who never got out of the house. He lived in Chelem. And he never got out of the house. He always lost something else. He couldn't find his shoes, his socks, his briefcase, his keys, his hat. You know those people? It takes them two hours to get out of the house. So he comes to the rabbi and he says, What should I do? The rabbi says, Tonight when you're in bed, make up a list where everything is. Because at night we seem to know where everything is. It's just in the morning, the angels somehow... The procrastinators explain to their wives that the angels move around the furniture. They say probably somebody broke into the house and took my socks, whatever it is. So make a list at night where everything is, and in the morning you'll follow the list. So this guy from Chelem is in bed, and he draws up a list where his shoes are and his keys and his attaché case and his pants and his shirt and his hat and everything. And then he comes to item number 10, I. And he says, I am in bed. He wakes up in the morning, gets out of bed, miracle of miracles, in five minutes he has all of his items. Till number 10. Number 10 is, I am in bed. So he comes to the bed to look for himself. But of course he's nowhere to be found in the bed. So he looks on top of the mattress, under the mattress, under the bed, in the pillowcase, outside of the pillowcase. The poor man, three hours, was searching for himself till he comes running to the Rav and he says, you know, why did you deceive me? Every day it takes me two hours. Today it takes me three hours and I still can't find where I am. But this anecdote is quite a true depiction of life. Because the mystery of where am I, who am I, Ayeka, Lamaza Anoichi, has been plaguing the human mind, the human soul, literally for 5,770 years. And if in the past psychology was just another branch of philosophy, we have Schleimler Freud, or Sigmund Freud, as he's known, his real name was Schleimler Freud, to thank, who is attributed, uh, who is defined as the father of psychoanalysis, whether it's true or not true. I'll tell you a word, the Erachayim writes in Parshas Vayetze, Vayar Hashem ki God saw that Leah was unloved. The Erechaim who lived 150 years before Epshleim Freud writes, what do you mean God saw that Leah was unloved? Nobody else saw it. Not even Yaakov because it was in the unconscious. Quite a fascinating interpretation of a Moroccan rabbi, Rabbi Nuchayim ben Otter, the Erechaim actually came to Jerusalem after. If you study Kabbalistic literature, Hasidic literature, you know that the concept of the unconscious is quite prevalent in the works of Kabbalah and Hasidus, particularly in the works of the Baal HaGeula of Yutas Kislev of Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi in his Chabad works. The whole Tanya is based, the magnum opus of his philosophy is based on the idea that there is an unconscious self, a superconscious self that one may be unaware of their entire life. But nonetheless, Freud is certainly the one who introduced this verbiage on a global 
a global scale, and the search has intensified. Whether it was Freud himself, whether it was Carol Jung, whether it was Dr. Adler, whether it was Viktor Frankl, whether it was Dr. Skinner, their students, the students of their students, and the branches of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and psychology that they created are still debated among the masses and used by many of us on one level or another level, especially among our beloved people who are quite intensely into this field. I wonder why. But they do say that there are three types of people, psychotics, neurotics, and psychiatrists. The difference is the psychotics build castles in the air. No, let's do it this way. The neurotics build castles in the air. The psychotics live in those castles. The psychiatrists collect the rent from both. So, one of the most prevalent theories of psychology has come to be known as the Darwinian Freudian model. Some type of synthesis between uh, Charles Darwin and uh, Sigmund Freud. Darwin was born in 1809, three years before the death, before the passing of Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi in the third generation of Hasidus. Freud was born a few decades later in 1856 and died in England just before the Second World War in 1939. So really, the two schools, the school of Hasidism and the school of psychology, although the school of Hasidim preceded it by a century and a half or two centuries, the Baal Shem Tov was born in 1698 and he is the founder of the Hasidic movement, which uh, in the works of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov and the Alter Rebbe and many others was developed in a very, very psychological way. The Alter Rebbe said on the verse of Eoiv, Mipsori echze eloika, from my flesh I shall see God. And he said what that really means is that the study of the human condition is ultimately the study of the divine. From my very flesh, from analyzing the inner structure of humanity, psychologically and even biologically, one ultimately discovers the nature of the Godhead and more importantly his relationship or its relationship with the cosmos. But in this model, which we might call the Darwinian-Freudian model, Charles Darwin taught that the most important gene or the most dominant force driving nature, driving living organisms is the need to survive, which came to be coined a generation later as survival of the fittest. And therefore, it is the strong that dominate the weak because the key issue, the key concern, the most dominant core in our psyche is I want to survive and I want to propagate and I want to remain. Self-preservation, that is the key. Freud is the one who developed that conflict between the id, the ego, and the superego. Where at the core of the human being you have the id, which he defined as a crazy monkey, who is absolutely uninhibited, and wants to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, however it wants, with whomever it wants, right now. Inconsiderate of reality, inconsiderate of values, of sensitivities, of anything. That's the id. But above the yid is what he called the ich, the ego. And the ego is 
not dominated by the pleasure principle, but by the reality principle. If the id is dominated by the pleasure principle, that's the only principle that counts. What gives me pleasure? What gives me gratification at this moment? The ego is sensitive to the fact that there's reality, and I have to consider reality. The ego negotiates between the id and the superego, the oiberich, the superego are the ethical values that each of us develop based on our parents, our home, and our society. The values may be true or false, it's irrelevant, but everybody has some ethical system, corrupt, destructive, constructive, that's what he called the superego. And the ego is that, what he called that uh, clerk, that negotiates between the pleasure principle, between the crazy monkey who just wants to fulfill all of its desires, and the super, and the ego, and the superego, which has some sense of ideals, or what's right, or what's wrong, what society believes in, what my parents taught me, what I've been indoctrinated to believe in, what I developed on my own, etc. So we have here in Darwin, the key issue is I want to survive, I want to exist. I'll do anything for that. There's absolutely no morality or ethics there. And according to Freud, you have to acknowledge that at the core of the self is an id, which is an uninhibited beast that simply wants to fulfill all of its pleasures without any other consideration. And if you repress it, Freud said, you are a meshugin neurotic. According to this, and all the other theories that developed, but nonetheless see this as, as the basic model. What can we already expect from a human being? What can we anticipate from a human being? When at the core in me is simply one issue, no consideration of anything or anybody, but survival of the fittest. And number two, just my pleasure, whatever I'm feeling I want without any inhibitions or limitations or confinements or restrictions. They tell the story, there was a bar mitzvah boy who comes to his mother and says, Mom, at the bar mitzvah I want to talk about our yichis, about our lineage. Tell me where we come from. Mom talks to him about the zayde, the baba, saba, safta, the lineage. No, 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 mom, where do we come from all the way in the beginning? Oh, mom says in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. On the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve decided to have children. The rest is history or her story. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, the Jewish people emerge. We hear. Okay, he writes it down in his little booklet, comes to dad. Dad is a proud graduate of Columbia University, an enlightened Jew, very open-minded and progressive. He tells dad, where do we come from? Dad talks about the grandparents. No, 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 with the beginning. Oh, dad says, the beginning, we have evolved. We've evolved from what? We've evolved from apes. How did that happen, his son asks. So he starts explaining him Charles Darwin's origin of species, the theory of evolution, which took millions and millions and millions of years. And where did the apes come from? They evolved from other primates. And he starts explaining to him that whole process of evolution till the Homo sapien developed. And where did it all begin? And dad says it began with an explosion of bacteria. The boy is very confused, comes back to mom and says, you know, I am bewildered. Where do we really come from? You know, you tell me we come from God, Adam, Eve, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Rachel. Dad tells me we come from apes, monkeys, and bacteria. Who got it right? And mom looks at him and says, son, there's really no contradiction. Your father was talking about his side of the family. <laughs> while, while I am talking about my side of the 
family. It's, it's, a humorous, it's a humorous story, but like all humor and jest, it contains, I think, you know, something of an authentic, an authentic truth. There was once a, a rabbi who was studying at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's a knock on his door. A couple walks in. The rabbi says, 3 in the morning? They say, yes, Third World War is about to break out in our home. What happened? 3 in the morning. And they tell him, tomorrow we're making a bris, a circumcision for our son. So the rabbi says, Mazel tov, what's the crisis? The crisis is we're fighting over the name. The rabbi turns to the mother and says, what name would you like to give the newborn baby? She says, Moshe. That's wonderful. He turns to the father, and what name would you prefer for the baby? He says, Moshe. So the rabbi says, so what's the war? She says, I want Moshe after my father. He wants Moshe after his father. The rabbi says, why not Moshe after both fathers? She says, no way. My father was a gentleman. He was generous. He was kind. He was benevolent. He was refined. He was adin. He was edel. He was a good guy. My father-in-law is the Erdos That's what your grandmother used to say when she didn't like somebody. My grandfather, a narcissist. Despicable, an addict, alcohol, gambling, codependent, horrible person, self-centered, abusive. Never will I allow my baby to be named after him. In fact, during his funeral, nobody had anything good to say. So the rabbi gets up and says, we have a tradition in the bylaws of the synagogue. We don't bury anybody without a positive eulogy. But for hours they're sitting, it starts, you know, Matchila Hasriach, it's Seipton Stinke, and uh, no one is saying anything. The rabbi says, listen, we're going to sit here for a few days, and the smell is not going to get better. So an old 99-year-old man raises it, and he says, okay, I'll give a eulogy. The rabbi says it has to be positive. He says it's going to be positive. He comes to the front, he gets up near the coffin, and he says, I'm just going to tell you one thing. His brother was much worse. So she says, that's him. Now you want me, you want, you want me to name, you want me to name my baby after him? Never. The rabbi says, you know what, Hevra, give me 10 minutes, I have to meditate. You know, this is not a question you can open a Shulchan Aruch, it's not so clear. I, I have to meditate. So they leave him alone for 10 minutes, they come back into his study, gives a knap, a knock on the table, and he says, verdict in the court, order in the court, the verdict is, the name of the baby is going to be Moshe. Such brilliance. Azaga oines. Rosh madhim kazeh. They both scream out, after whom? He says, listen, the name of the baby now will be Moshe. When the baby grows up, we'll see who he was named after. <laughs> he himself, he himself will notify us who he was named after. Both these anecdotes, my family, your side of the family, my side of the family, Moshe, 
are a humorous but authentic intro into the model of psychology, the way it was articulated in Judaism throughout the millennia, especially in the works of Kabbalah and even more in the works of Hasidus. And now come back with me to the story of Elisha ben Avuya. We have two Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud, authored by Rabbi Yochanan, was composed a hundred years, one century before the Babylonian Talmud, which is why the Rosh, Rabbeinu Usher, writes that whenever there is a halachic debate between the two Talmuds, the halacha is kebavli. We follow the Babylonian because the sages of the Babylonian Talmud in Iraq had the opportunity to scrutinize and analyze and dissect the views of the Jerusalem Talmud. The story about Elisha ben Avuya riding on his horse and the baskol, the voice telling him he's not welcome, is found, as I said earlier, in both Gemaras, in Tractate Chagig in the Babylonian and Tractate Chagig in the Jerusalem Talmud. But there's a little difference. It's a tiny nuance but not insignificant. And I asked the question, which one got it right? According to the Babylonian Talmud, the voice that came from heaven said these words, Shuvu bonim shovavim chutz me'acher. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, the voice said something different. Shuvu bonim shovavim chutz me'elisha ben avuya. Which voice was heard from heaven? Which voice was communicated from heaven? Everybody can do tshuva except Acher, or everybody is welcome to return except Elisha ben Avuya. It was Rabbi Yosheber Salavechik, Rabbi J.B. Salavechik, who in, in an address in Atlantic City in 1962 to the RCA, to Estados Unidos, suggested that we use the same principle of halacha when it comes to agada homiletics and we say halacha kebavli the voice said shuvu bonim shavavim chutz me'acher so why then does the Jerusalem Talmud change the traditions and really, really distort the words chutz me'elisha ben avuya it's in this nuanced shift which allows us to capture, perhaps, the essence of the drama that occurred with this great mind and great sage, Elisha ben Avoya. It captures both the depth of the tragedy and the depth of what might have been. You see, what the baskol, what the voice was telling Elisha ben Avoya is, let me share with you something, my dear. You are a Jew. You are an indispensable member of my people. You are as pure, as sacred, as holy as any other Jewish soul. But one day, one day, this alien dibuk, so to speak, penetrated into your psyche and suddenly you looked in the mirror and you started to call yourself an Acher you're an alien, you're a foreigner you're a foreign stranger to the Jewish heritage, to the Jewish faith to the Jewish people, to the Jewish God you don't belong here anymore you looked at the people
people and you looked at yourself and you said, I'm an Acher. At this moment on Yom Kippur, riding, riding on the Harabayat, a loving, tender voice reached Elisha ben Avuya's heart and said, Shuvu bonim shavavim. Come back, my child. You're my child. The love of a healthy parent, of a functional parent, of a wholesome parent to a child is unconditional. It's unconditional. The love cannot be damaged, cannot be destroyed, cannot be obliterated, notwithstanding if the child brings nachas or meets the parent's expectations or not. There is an essential, immutable bond between mother and child, between father and son or daughter. Shuvu banim shavavim. You're my child. You're my beloved. We are essentially and eternally connected. Chutz Take your perspective of yourself as acher and leave it outside. Chutz Let go of your persona, of your self-image, in which you keep on repeating to yourself like a broken CD the message. I'm an acher. I'm bad, I'm alien, I'm different. I don't believe, I don't care. That's an acher, that's a stranger in you. Chutz acher. Let go of the acher. You're my child, you're not an acher. This is what the Baskol was telling him. But what did he hear? What did he hear? What I tell you and what you hear are two separate things. What you tell your husband and what your husband hears are two separate things. What I tell my child and my child hears are two separate things. What did Elisha ben Avuya hear? He did not hear the message, Chutzme Acher. You know what he heard? Chutzme Elisha ben Avuya. The tragedy of Elisha ben Avuya was he was incapable of making the differentiation between the I, the essential I, and the Acher. For him, Acher and Elisha ben Avuya were synonymous. So when the voice tells him, Leave go of the Acher. What he heard was, you're bad. You're unworthy. You're unwelcome. You are rejected. You are an outcast. You have no place here. And he told Reb Meir, I cannot come back. Doesn't this capture, in a word, the story of so many people and the Basco that the Balshemtev that the Alter Rebbe, that the great masters of Hasidism try to start singing and resonating. Where so many people look in the mirror and as a result of life's experiences, of nurture or nature, as a result of messages that have been imprinted in our psyche from the youngest age like letters in soft clay that then become engraved and we don't differentiate anymore between the raw clay and the letters. And so many grow up, so many grow up and look at themselves and define themselves as an acher. I don't belong. I'm incapable. I'm not good enough. I'm an animal. I'm a beast. I'm an alien. I'm a stranger. We judge ourselves more than anybody else judges us. Those thoughts that keep on repeating themselves. My eye is somehow not good enough. My eye is bad. My eye is ugly. My natural eye is grotesque. My life is bad because I am bad. I'm incapable of this, I'm incapable of that, I'm incapable of that. 
I'm incapable of a relationship. I'm incapable of raising children. I'm incapable of being successful. I'm incapable of having a relationship with God. I'm incapable of being productive. I'm incapable of being powerful, of authentic, of honest. The baskel that Judaism and Hasidism started to sing in such a powerful way was, Shuvu bonim shavavim Of course we have an acher in us. Of course, every now and then, sometimes every hour, those thoughts emerge in my mind, telling me all these things about me. With proofs, with proofs, with demonstrations. And when I talk to my spouse, or I talk to my children, I come into a meeting, that's what I bring. I bring that toxicity into the room. The toxicity that I'm unworthy, that I'm not good, I'm defensive. The akhir in me. Of course that's a part of me. But as the Tanya puts it, the key into life is to differentiate between your thoughts and your essential I. Depression comes from the fact that judgmental thoughts, negative thoughts don't stop playing in our brain and we have no way of realizing that I am the sky and my thoughts are the clouds. And I have to let the clouds pass. But sometimes the clouds are very dark. Sometimes the clouds can drive me insane. So Freud will tell me, at your core, you're just a crazy monkey, nothing else. And Darwin will tell me, at your core, all you want is self-preservation, self-gratification. There's nothing else. Comes the Balatanya, and in chapter 2 of Tanya, it makes a statement, a grand statement. V'nefesh hashenit b'Yisrael hi'chelek eloika mimal mamish. Now, the this, there's a soul, there's a consciousness at the core of you, which is literally a fragment of God. It is a part of the divine. Now, the term chelik elokami mal is from a pasuk, a verse in Job. It's quoted by many Kabbalists, by many Rishonim. But the Balatanya adds one word chelik elokami mal, mamish. Mamish. Mamish means it's as real, as real as the mic, as real as the bottle of water, as real as the standard. It's real. So I ask you a question. How bad can the peace of God in you be? How can you look in the mirror and say, you're an acher? Does that peace of God need validation from somebody? Does it need to justify its existence? I grow up sometimes and I carry these toxic messages. I need validation. I need to justify my existence. I need to always prove myself because there's no essential goodness there. And what he's suggesting is that at your core, you are as good as it gets. At your core, there is absolute goodness and purity and perfection. You're impeccable, you're flawless, just as God needs no validation. Your chelik elokam imal needs no validation. You have thoughts of acher? Of course. That's called the nefesh habahamit. That's what Freud and Darwin articulated so well. I have a crazy monkey. I mean, so what? It's even worse than a crazy monkey. Monkeys can be very cute. And sometimes my crazy monkey is insane and ugly. The men know what I'm talking about. But I'm not an Ache. I'm a Ben. So every morning when your person wakes up, we say, The message you want to tell yourself is that there is a, my core is as pure as it gets. 
This is what every child has to hear. God loves you unconditionally because that I is actually a piece of the infinite. And there's nothing you can do to corrupt that essence. I may have made mistakes. I may have made terrible mistakes. Okay. I made mistakes. But what we tell ourselves is, not only I made mistakes, I am a mistake. I am one big mistake. I am bacteria. What can you expect from bacteria? And that's where we delegitimize ourselves and our potential. And if I believe that about me, there's no way I can bequeath another message to my children, or to my students, or to my loved ones. What you have to understand, what everyone has to know, and you can't say this, it's about an authentic internal experiences, that that core, which Judaism and Kabbalah and Hasidism articulated cannot be altered and damaged by anything you did or you didn't do in life. That is absolutely valuable. Your value is non-negotiable. Your dignity is unequivocal and non-conditional. And there's absolutely nothing you can add or decrease from it. You don't have to be productive or successful or become the greatest doctor, or lawyer, or rabbi, in order to give yourself value. That's not Judaism. That's impositions of insecure culture, or insecurity that sometimes infiltrates a culture. This is what will give you value. No, the foundation is absolute value. The mansion is always built on that foundation. You never have to seek validation from anybody, not even from your mother, not even from your mother-in-law. What do they say that for a Jewish mother, right? She says, if I have a normal child, he'll become a doctor. If he's a little slow, a lawyer. If he's retarded, an accountant. If he's mamish meshuggah, a rabbi. Trust me that there's a point there. Oh, todah. Now come back to the story in Tainis. Rebbe Lazar ben Shimon sees a man who tells him, Shalom Alecha Mori Virabi. And he looks at his face. And some people know how to look at a face. What does the Pasik say? Chachmat Adam Ta'ir Panav. The wisdom radiates through your face. The opposite of wisdom also radiates through one's face. And he looks at him, he takes a look at his face, and he feels that this man really needs help. Now sometimes when people hit rock bottom, they wake up. People who are addicted are in a terrible disease. And sometimes till they hit rock bottom, They don't become conscious. They're so delusional. They're so wrapped up in dreams. Often, even if you're not addicted, sometimes we're so not ready to face our own truth. When people come to me for advice, I always ask them the first question. Should I give you an answer that you want to hear, or should I tell you the truth? Of course, they always say, tell me the truth. But what do most people mean? Of course, tell me what I want to hear. Because whenever I believe them and I tell them the truth, they hate me. <laughs> well, I'm just joking. It's not the truth about always. But sometimes we're so, we're so dishonest with ourselves. 
Not because we want to be, but simply because our glasses are tinted and we see the world from a certain perspective. It takes a lot of humility, vulnerability, integrity, and introspection to really allow yourself to open up to reality. And in order to be able to open up to reality and be vulnerable, you have to have an unshakable core that is not afraid of being vulnerable because you're not afraid that if you're vulnerable, you're going to disintegrate into nothingness. Because a chelik elokami mal will not disintegrate into nothingness. So he looks at this man and he feels that he is beyond repair. And he wonders, how can I repair him? We, I think we need a little shock treatment. So he says, how ugly are you? But he adds, maybe all the people of your city are ugly. What he means is, this is the paradigm of life that you know. This has been indoctrinated into you. So the man responds and says, go to the craftsman who made me and tell him how ugly is this vessel that you fashioned. So here is an interpretation we heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory who said this, he suggested this in the Talmud. It's not that the man was refuting Rabbi Elazar, he was responding to him. Rabbi Elazar's shock treatment was effective. It was so effective that for the first time in his life, this man said, there is a craftsman who made me. For the first time he felt that there is somebody who made him. A craftsman doesn't only make a vessel for fun. A craftsman fashions a vessel purposefully. For the first time in his life, he felt that his life was purposeful. The eye was fashioned for a meaningful purpose. There is an eye that is indispensable to God's existence, has a mission statement, and therefore has non-negotiable dignity. Rebbe Lazar was successful. He triggered that point, which is why the man did not tell him later, never do it. He said, don't make a habit out of it. The Maharsha asks, he should have said never. The answer is, in rare occasions, you have to take extreme measures. Usually not. Why usually not? Because usually you don't have to access that point in people through negative verbiage. Usually you can come to a person and the key of what you want to communicate to yourself is, there is Uman Sha'asa'ani. That I that we're all looking for, that I that we're all gossiping about. When you come into your therapist's office and you tell him, I'm crazy, I'm confused, I'm depressed, I'm bad, I always feel guilty, my life is driven by fog. You know what the mystical acronym of fog is? Fear, obligation, guilt. Everything I do is either out of fear, obligation, guilt. How many things do we do out of fear, obligation, guilt? You're lying to the therapist. I'm not bad, I'm not ugly, I'm not guilty. There are thoughts in me that are telling me I'm this, I'm this, I'm that, I'm that. I am none of this. I am a piece of God. <laughs> Stand in front of the mirror and say it. If you have to say it 70 times a day, say it 70 times a day. This doesn't create arrogance. This actually allows you to be humble because it gives you the confidence that allows you to acknowledge mistakes, to be vulnerable, to have honest relationships. You know what else it allows you? It allows you to give. 
Because if I never feel I'm good enough, I'm always taking. When my wife complains to me that she's stressed or she had a horrible day or year or week, I can't listen to her. You can't listen to your child because what I'm busy is trying to fill my void which keeps on telling me I'm nothing. So I'm waiting for her to compliment me. But when you are wholesome inside, you can be present for another person. You could be attentive. My eye is good. So now let me be attentive to you. The Kotzke Rebbe said it when he said, I'm sure you all get that. Okay, I'll translate. If I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I, and you are not you. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, then I am I, and you are you. If my I is always responding to you, if I'm always dodging my reactions, my interactions based on your expectations because I need to please you, I need, a va I need validation from you, I need a compliment from you, I need acceptance from you. There's no I. Can I even be there for you? I don't even have an I to be here for you. Can I say I love you? There's no I. My I is trying to feed itself. I'm dying for oxygen. means love somebody else like yourself. It doesn't only mean love them like yourself. It also means you have to love yourself in order to love somebody. If I hate myself, if I'm a broken vessel who thinks it's grotesque, I can't be here for somebody. When you're selfless in an unhealthy way, you become the most selfish person. You heard that? When you're selfless in an unhealthy way, you become parasitic. Because you're always looking for validation. When I have a health, wholesome eye, when I acknowledge Uman Asa'ani, when you insult yourself, you're insulting the craftsman who made you. You're saying that this craftsman was wasting his time because he saw nothing in you. I said the other night at a Yutas Kistov gathering, I was at a bar mitzvah recently, and the father of the boy comes over to me, Mazel Tov, and he asks to dance with me. So we're dancing together in the middle of a beautiful hall with a hundred types of sushi, which is the highlight, of course. And, and we're dancing. It's wonderful. It's great music. And in the middle of the dancing, I see that there are tears streaming from his eyes. And I ask him, in the middle of why are you crying? So he says, can you answer me a question? Sure. Did anything come of me? Did I become anything in life? Why are you asking this at your son's bar mitzvah? He says, when I was a child in school, somebody who worked in the school came over to me one day and said, you're wasting your time. Nothing will come of you. I looked at him and I said, you're 42 years old. This happened 30 years ago or so. Why are you bringing it up now at the bar mitzvah? He says, not a day has passed that I did not think about that comment. But he's at least conscious of it. How many are unconscious of it? And I related to him, if you need me to tell you that something came of you, that itself is a symptom of the problem. The eye in Yiddishkeit, the eye in Hasidus, 
is as perfect as they come and nothing can damage it. Achel did not differentiate between his self-persona, his self-imposed image, and his essential eye. And it's in this differentiation. We don't get rid of those thoughts. That's the difference between the tzaddik and the bane in the entanya. The tzaddik is somebody who is 24 hours in a state of dveikus. What is dveikus? Dveikus with whom? Dveikus with himself or herself. Dveikus is intimacy. Intimacy is into me see. Into me see. The me. And the only thing that's wrong with me is that I think that something is wrong with me. You can tell that to my mother-in-law. <laughs> no, she's a nice lady. She loves me. The only thing that's wrong with you, you want to know? Is that you think there's something wrong with you. With you, there's nothing wrong. It's a chelik halakami mal. I made mistakes? Sure, I'll fix them. I won't fix them. I hope I'll fix them. I'm having a bad day. I have thoughts that drive me crazy. Suddenly I'm a beast. I'm an animal. Okay. Suddenly I'm a kvetch. I'm an insecure, timid shmata in my mind. Okay. I have a little cute animal. It's called Nefesh Bahamas. And it starts barking. Winston Churchill had a terrible depression. You know that? You don't know that. Okay. And in his autobiography, it's a great insight. He says he decided to identify his depression as a black dog that always accompanies him. And the moment the dog starts barking, you got to say, okay, welcome. It's a dog. It goes with you everywhere. It goes to weddings. It goes to bar mitzvahs. It even came here tonight. How do I know? Because you're thinking, oh, I'm messed up after this lecture. <laughs> I'm really messed up. I'll never be able to do this. And what did I do to my kids? And if those are your thoughts, I know the black dog is here. You're not listening to a word I'm saying. Ask the craftsman who made you how ugly you are, how repulsive you are. Sigmund Freud, his first name begins with a Sama. His second name begins with a Faye. Two letters of the name Yosef. Yosef has a stomach faith. So what's the difference between Freud and Yosef? They're both obsessed with dreams. <laughs> they're both stomach faith. They're busy with dreams. And they're so busy with dreams that they even make another faith. Pharaoh, he's also obsessed with dreams. You know, the first half of Bereshit, a few people are dreaming. Avimelech, Jacob, Yaakov. The end of Bereshit, everybody is dreaming. Once Yosef starts dreaming, forget about it. Butlers are dreaming, bakers are dreaming, kings are dreaming. America just commemorated 50 years since I have a dream. <laughs> But Dr. King's dream was inspired by Yosef's dream. Take a look at the difference between Yosef's dream and Paris's dream. I'm just going to point out little differences. And I'm going to do a little Freudian analysis with the permission of Samach <laughs> Joseph's first dream is about stalks of wheat. His second dream is about sun, moon, and stars. He grows from the world of Tzomeach 
to the heavenly world, from earth, from alumim, from sheaves, he goes to heaven. Pharaoh is the opposite direction. He begins with animal life, cows, and he goes down from Chai to Tzomeach. It's more than that. In Joseph's dreams, there is activity, there's action. We're binding together. We bow, you bow. In Joseph's dream, there is control. I'm not a victim, not even of the sun and the moon. On the contrary, I have a lot of power. Pharaoh is passive, he's paralyzed. He just watches the strong being defeated by the weak. The one who was the fittest yesterday becomes the defeated one today. Samachfei, Sigmund Freud, was a brilliant man. You know what he was missing? Two letters, Yud and Vav. Yud and Vav are two letters of God's name. Because Sigmund Freud believed at the core of the human condition is the it, I-D. What he was missing was, was one letter. The Yud, the Yid, beneath the it. True, there's an it. Of course there's a crazy, uninhibited, wild beast in me. And it emerges in so many ways, sometimes in absolute insecurity, sometimes in absolute heavy cravings, or some other stuff. But beneath it, there's a yid. Beneath the acher, there's a bang, there's a child. There's a piece of infinity. You're never a victim. So when the brothers meet Joseph, Yosef, after 22 years of such suffering, and they're terrified that he's going to punish them for all of the misery they conferred upon his life. He tells them one line. Don't get depressed. You did not sell me. God has sent me on a shlichus to give life. So Nachama Leibowitz, Zichrona Levracher, in her commentary on Chumash, brilliantly points out that what Joseph was differentiating between was being sold or being sent. They said, they thought we sold him. Of course they're terrified. He said, you never sold me. God sent me. What do you mean? They did sell him. What do you mean God sent me? They sold him. There's a very big difference between being sold and being sent. I sell objects and I don't ask their opinion before I sell them. Before I sell my piano or my house or my car or my computer on eBay or my beautiful refrigerator. I don't ask my refrigerator. I don't consult my house and say, you know, I, I know you've spent 20 years with me but it's time to make some money off you. Are you fine? <laughs> I don't, because it's an object. Yosef, when I send somebody on a mission, it's not only that I consult them, I first have to evaluate if they're suitable for the mission. If they're not suitable for the mission, I won't send them on the shlichut. Yosef says, I wasn't sold. I'm not an object. I was sent. I'm living in the presence of God every moment. And my core value is non-negotiable. And that's the core of my life. God has evaluated that I am capable of introducing light into darkness, warmth into coldness. So he sent me to places where he did not send you. I was never a victim. 
Because when I'm in touch with that I, I am always an ambassador of God. The sun will bow down to me. The moon will bow down to me. The stars will bow down to me. I'm not a victim of earth. I'm not even a victim of heaven. A chelikalakamimal is not a victim. A child is not a victim. A foreign stranger could see himself as a victim. I'll tell you a cute anecdote that the Tolner Rebbe shared. The Tolner Rebbe was speaking at a gathering for the Yard Center of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said, what's the difference between Breslov and Chabad? So he said, Reb Nachman wanted that Breslov and Hasidim should have long payas, long sidelines. Because he said, you'll probably end up in hell. And I need to schlep you out. How do I schlep you out? I'm going to take those payas and schlep you out. So he says, Reb Nachman comes to heaven. This is, of course, a cute parable. He comes to heaven and he hears somebody screaming, Goes in, he sees a breast of a chassid nebuch on the barbecue. You have payas, payas, schleps his payas, takes him out of purgatory into paradise. Tolner Rebbe says, Lubavitcher Rebbe also comes there, and suddenly he hears somebody screaming, Rebbe! Lubavitcher Rebbe walks into purgatory, he sees a Jew. Rebbe, help me! Approaches him, takes out a dollar from his pocket, gives it to him and says, much hatzlacha in your shlichus here. <laughs> this, this, this is what Yosef told his brothers. I wasn't sold. I'm not in hell. I'm on a shlichus. I'm always a shliach. But I had a terrible childhood. But my mother is this. My father is this. My brother is this. My sister is this. My school, my community, my shul. Do you know what happened in that place? I'm not even going to begin to talk. How about victims of real abuse? There's a lot of discussion about that recently. Here is where this model is so crucial. Of course you were hurt, maybe objectively and maybe badly. But if you can identify your core, you weren't sold, you were sent. You were sent. If you were sent, that means you have the power to become the prime minister, even of a country like Egypt. And you know that it's a complicated country. It was a complicated country then. It's still a complicated country. It wouldn't be bad if we can get a Yosef again as its prime minister. But I won't hold my breath at the moment. There's a id, but there's the yid beneath the id. Ah. So we dealt with Acher. And we dealt with how ugly you are. Go to my craftsmen. Go to the craftsman who made me. That's what you have to tell your thoughts. When those thoughts come in, breathe and say, go to the craftsman who made me and tell him how bad of a job he did. And if you believe that, knock yourself out. <laughs> and if you don't, you're a shliach, you're a messenger, you're powerful. So, the Greeks, what was aesthetical for the Greeks was ethical. If it is aesthetical, it is ethical. For the Jews, it was the other way. What is ethical is aesthetical. What is not ethical is not aesthetical. They come to Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania and they ask the question. And the question is, if you're looking for a woman and you find this wonderful woman and she rejects you, you don't go for hire. You go for lower. He says, no, the nail didn't go in on the bottom of the wall, it'll penetrate the top of the wall. So this is the interpretation I found 
in a book, a sefer known as Oyev Yisrael. You know by who was authored? By the Hasidic master, Rabbi Avraham Yeshua Heschel of Apter, known as the Apter Rav. The Apter Rav. And I saw this in Parshish Hazinu in Oyev Yisrael. He asks a question. Moses begins his last speech on earth with these words, Hazinu Hashamayim Vadabeira. Listen, O heaven, as I talk. Let the earth listen to my words. I have a question. You imagine a rabbi giving a sermon, getting up, and saying, Good Shabbos. Listen, heaven, to my sermon, and earth to my words. Why aren't you speaking to the people? Especially if it's your last sermon. For 40 years, you've been giving sermons every Shabbos. Now is your last sermon before you go into the next world. You look at the audience, and you say, listen heaven and listen earth. I mean, I do do that sometimes when everybody falls asleep. <laughs> when everyone is asleep, who do I talk to? I talk to the heavens and I talk to the earth. I was once at a dinner, if you ever had the bad fortune of going to Jewish dinners, people speak non-end. And I was the keynote and I was the last speaker. It was Mamish, it was recently in Montreal. I told the rabbi, Give, forget me, do me a favor, do them a favor. You're gonna put me up at 12 o'clock? 12 o'clock, he says, yeah, they wanna hear you. I say, okay, I'll speak for 10 minutes. He says, no, the full hour. I'm like, God bless you, I'll speak to the heavens. So I get up to the crowd, I felt so bad for them. Mamish, you know, I really felt bad. So I told him, listen. I said, listen, there was once a guy who came to speak and he went on and on and on and on for hours and hours. Hours and hours. 11 o'clock, people left. A few people remained out of respect. 12 o'clock, everybody left. One guy remained. The speaker says, wow, this guy really appreciates me. So he goes on for another hour. The guy is still sitting. He says, wow, I think I have now found my Plato. Socrates had his Plato. I finally found my Talmud Muvaku will transcribe all my genius. So he goes on further. The guy is still there. He says, wow, he's mamish going to become my most beloved disciple. And he stops at three o'clock in the morning. He finishes, he runs over to the man. He gives him a big hug, a big kiss. And he says, Plato, thank you for coming into my life. We will now be inseparable as you will transcribe all my genius. He says, to tell you the truth, I wasn't listening to your speech. So he says, so why did you stay here till three o'clock in the morning? He said, I'm the next speaker. <laughs> so I told them, I told them, I said, I have good news and bad news. The good, the bad news is I'm the next speaker. The good news is I'm the last speaker. So when I spoke then, I said, listen, heaven, listen, earth. Why would Moshe say that? So the helicopter up says, open your hearts. He says, sometimes, you're speaking to your teenage, I'm using my own words. Sometimes you're communicating to your teenage child. Sometimes you're communicating to yourself. Sometimes you're communicating to other people. And they're not responding. They're indifferent. They're apathetic. They once asked a Jew, what's the difference between, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? He said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> they don't care. They don't know. You speak to them and they're not responding. They're not responding. You speak to people, you speak to yourself, you're not communicating. Nothing is going in. You want to help, you want to enhance their lives. Nothing is going in. What do you do? The Greek said, of course not. They're just bacteria, as we would put it today. What do you expect from bacteria? 
Moshe said, Ha'azinu ha'shamayim. The problem is not that you're speaking too high, you're speaking too low. Because you're speaking too low, you are encountering their resistance. Speak up to them. Look up to them. Find the heaven in them and speak to the heaven that exists in them. When you stand in front of a youngster or in front of an older person, say, Ha'azinu ha'shamayim. I'm speaking to the heaven in you. I know there is heaven in you. If I speak to the earth in you, that's where the resistance is. That's where the depression is. That's where the garbage is. That's where the gravel, dirt, filth. I'm acher, 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 acher. I speak to the child. Rishon Ben-Hanania says, on the bottom of the wall, there's cement. The nail won't go in. You have to lift it up. You have to pick up the message. People in a deep place are very, very idealistic. They're very, very pristine. They're very, very pure. Reach into their purity. America commemorated 50 years since Kennedy's assassination. What did the youth love about Kennedy? That he stood up and said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And you probably know about the history teacher who asked his students who said it and when, and they didn't know. And he was annoyed, and there was a Japanese kid who knew. He said it was Kennedy, January 22nd, 1961, during his inauguration address. And the, kid, the teacher started to chastise the American spoiled brats, addicted to I, iPhone, iPod, iPad, everything I. And even when they finally have a game called We, it's spelled with two I's. I, 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 I. <laughs> So, he says, we have to learn from the Japanese. Here is a kid from a foreign culture. He displays so much perseverance. We must learn from the Japanese. And for 20 minutes, he elevates the Japanese. And you'll forgive me. I know it's a shul. There's a voice heard from the back of the classroom. To hell with the Japanese. The teacher is dumbfounded. 20 years he's teaching. Nobody spoke to him this way. He screams out, who said that? And the student responds, Harry Truman, 1945. <laughs> why is it, why is it that Kennedy captured the youth? Because he didn't speak down. He didn't lower the principles. He didn't dilute the message. Ha'azinu ha'shamayim. Speak to the heaven and people. What did Montgomery say? The difficult we do immediately, the impossible takes a little longer. Trust in the heaven. Reach out to it. Reach into your own heaven so you can reach out to other people's heavens. And when the Greeks heard that, they said, okay, we never heard that perspective. Lift up the nail and there won't be any resistance. We dumb down truth because we want to be acceptable. We don't realize that it's actually the other way around. The more pure, the more true, the more real, the more divine, the more sacred, the deeper you'll penetrate. Because you're touching a place in people where there's very little resistance. You're touching the child instead of the acher. So now I have to conclude with a story. And the story is dear to me.
because of its message. And especially today when there's so much division and conflict among Jews, especially in Israel, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we, we, we know how to fight in one way or another. They say, you know, we've always fought. We fight with God, we call it theology. We fight with the world, we call it sociology. We fight with ourselves, we call it psychology. But we fight. I say Shalom Aleichem, you can't say Shalom Aleichem, you say Aleichem Shalom. You right away have to disagree with me. Even before we get into a conversation, you already disagree. Shalom Aleichem, stop hacking a Chinik, it's Aleichem Shalom. So this story was shared by the person who was there. I grew up in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, the feet of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, blessed memory, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson who was a successor of the seventh generation of Chabad Hasidus from the Balatanya, from the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, who was his grandfather, which is why the name is Schneir's son, the son of Schneir, because the first Rebbe's name was Schneir Zalman, who passed away in 1812 on the 24th of Tevis and was liberated on Yutas Kislev, the 19th of Kislev. Lubavitcher Rebbe had a custom that on the day before Yom Kippur and on a Shiner Rabbah, the end of Sukkot, he would stand by his sukkah and give out honey cake to whoever wanted to receive a piece of delicious honey cake and bless them with a good and sweet year, known in Yiddish as Lekach. And once a Jew who lives today in Chicago, his name is Rabbi Bukit, is standing in line, and near him, he's in between or after two people. One person is a Satmer Chassid. You're familiar with Satmer? Satmer Center in Williamsburg. Um, the ideology of Satmer and Chabad for many years has been quite divergent, especially when it came to secular Jews and Israel, etc. Kirov, all that. But this Satmer Chassid decided to come to receive honey cake from the Rebbe. In front of him was a man who seemed like an absolute hippie. You know, the hair, the dress, the style. He was as hippie as you can get, and he's right in front of him. So you have a Jew with a long silk bekesh and a gartel and a strimal and a big beard, and you have this real hippie. And the hippie comes by the Rebbe, and the Rebbe blesses him, and he's about to leave. And the Rebbe calls him back, and he says, where are you going to be dancing tonight for hakafas? So this secular Jew says to the Rebbe, I'm not sure. I'm interested in participating in hakafas. So the Rebbe says, I hereby extend my personal invitation to you to come dance with me in my shul, Hakafas, here tonight at 770 Eastern Parkway with the crowd. It would be lovely to have you with us if you can make it. So the man, trying to be polite, says, I'll think about it. You know when you tell somebody, I'll think about it, it's a nice way of saying, no. But that's what he told the Rebbe. The Rebbe gave him a blessing. He left. The Satmer, the Satmer Chassid is watching all of this. He comes. It's his turn. The Rebbe gives him a piece of honey cake and blesses him with a shana toiva umesuka azisayar, a good and sweet year. He's about to leave. And the Rebbe stops him and turns to him and says, in Yiddish, you're probably wondering, are you not? And as he told the story, not only he was wondering, but he was quite annoyed. He was quite annoyed that a Rebbe, a Hasidic master, would be so engaging and welcoming to such a secular, alien Jew who doesn't even know if he's going to celebrate Yom Tif, what they, what some people call Paisha Yisrael, you know, the sinners of Israel. You don't get close to sinners of Israel. You segregate yourself. 
And he was so nice to him and kind to him. You know, how can me and him share the same Rebbe? It doesn't work. These are thoughts. So the Rebbe says to him, you've probably been wondering, haven't you? And he nods, yes. You want to know why I invited him to Akafas here? He says, yes. So he said, let me ask you a question. This is all in the line. A lot of people waiting. It took a few minutes. He says, Yismach Moshe Lerenstuhl? Do you learn the book of Yismach Moshe? Now, I suspect maybe 10 people don't know what Yismach Moshe is. I'll tell you. What Tanya is to Chabad, right? What Gemara is to Yeshiva, Yismach Moshe is to Satmer. It's a Hasidic work by the first founder of Satmer dynasty, Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum of Uhal, Uhel in Hungary. It's a classic work studied in Satmer called Yismach Moshe. It's a good book. He wrote a book on Tehillim also. So the Rebbe says, you're a Satmer Chassid. You learn Yismach Moshe. He says, of course. So you know his book on Tehillim, Tehillim Moshe. Of course. Do you remember the story that he writes in the introduction to that book? He wants to remind himself. So the Rebbe reminds him the story. He tells him the story. And the story goes as follows. Classic Hasidic story. There's a man named Reb Michal's Lachever. Reb Michal's Lachever is a student of the Balshemtiv. His father, whose name is Reb Yitzchak Dabricher, we won't quiz you on the names. His father, Reb Yitzchak Dabricher, passes away, comes to heaven. Who meets him in heaven? Rashi. What's the honor? Rashi says, Your son, Reb Michal's Lachever, generates the greatest joy in heaven. God loves him in a unique way. Tell me why. The father, Rabbi Yitzchak, says, My son, Rabbi Michal's Lachever, I'll tell you why. He gives tzedakah constantly. He collects charity and distributes to poor people. Rashi says, tzedakah is the greatest mitzvah. But there are other Jews who give charity. What is unique about him? Hashem is just in love with his actions. So he says, My son, doesn't stop learning Torah. Like Pasik Pumimigirsa. Rashi says that's awesome. Talmud Torah Kenegat Kulam. Learning is the greatest. But there's many Jews who sit and learn all day and all night. So he says, My son fasts from Friday to Friday. He eats only at night. He challenges his body to his core. He lives a very spiritual life. Rashi says that's very powerful. But there's other Jews who do it. And he goes on with different things. And Rashi says it's all great, but there's other people who do it. So he tells Rashi, there's one more thing my son does. And he quotes the verse in Malachi. The verse that reads, V'rabim heshiv me'avon. He returned many people from a life of iniquity. And he tells Rashi, that's my son. He goes out and he brings Jews back to Yiddishkeit and makes them feel that they have a dignified place in the structure of the Jewish people. And when Rashi heard that, Nisyash Vadaitoi, Rashi calmed down. He said, now I understand. So the Rebbe looks at him and says, Rashi calmed down, you could calm down. You can calm down. The man smiles and the Rebbe says in Yiddish, Hast verstanden? Did you get it? And I suspect he didn't mean it intellectually. Did you get it? And he says in Hungarian Yiddish, Ich git, git verstanden. I got it very well. And he walked away. He walked away changed. 
because he realized, he realized that that encounter was a moment when a Jew looked at another Jew and he didn't see Acher, he saw Ben. And the man who was standing in line, whose name is Rabbi Bukit, sheared that Hakafis went on and they danced all night. And he went home at six in the morning. And as he's walking home six in the morning, he takes a look and who does he see dancing? He sees the hippie was dancing right there in Shul. After all, he could not refuse the invitation. So, I bless you and all of us that when you look at yourself, when you look at your child, and when you look at another human being, when you look at another Jew, you shouldn't see Acher. You should have the strength and the confidence and the vision to be able to see the Ben, the child. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.